death sentence for this week, and here's some literary news. Um, Elon Musk has self-identified as a cat girl. A uh, person from that band Absu has come out as trans and also told everyone that the band Absu like broke up because she came out as trans. Um, the lady from Agrophobic Nosebeat left the band. Um, obviously, there were, there were bombs. Uh, luckily, no one was hurt. And the whole bomb thing kind of ended up almost funny because of just how bizarre the guy's van was. Uh, that was that, yeah, that was a very... And that was clearly, I think, people... Uh, so... I guess I guess the best way that I can think to put it is we talk about things being uh, Kafka esque. First, it's dealing with bureaucracy, and then is dealing with uh, absurdity. But I think that we write out that the reason why he cared about absurdity and bureaucracy, and why he has that undercurrent of violence in all of his work, is because he was witnessing the rise of fascism, and it's the it ties into what we were talking about during um, that first show we did together with 20 Days of Turin of just witnessing these utterly fucking incompetent and insane people that just happen to be on the most powerful side of contemporary uh, political climates. Mm. And it's just like the fact that his van was insane was this like horrible Kafka-esque silver lining. But aside from that, it's like, it's insanely not funny what he did, but it's just like your brain gets so bent that then when you finally see the van, you just start like cathartic cackling because you you don't fucking know how to how to process anything that just yeah. happened. Yeah. Um. So we got a good evening of laughter and memes on that. Then earlier today, as everyone knows, uh, eleven people were killed in Pittsburgh. Um. Nothing good. To, I mean, nothing can't even be said about that uh it's yeah everything single fucking day I, I don't even know how you do it as an american like i know you were like brought up in this and like columbine was early in your youth and this is just like every day but i i have no idea how americans do it it's it's a really good question and one that i don't think has a satisfactory answer either um either in real life or that's been dealt with well in uh, in fiction or, or art, really. Mainly because I think we're still we're still in the midst of it, and so there's that horrible that horrible reality that if we are honest with ourselves, art has never really been all that great at grappling with things in the moment. It's very good at looking back and peeling back the layers, and yeah, it's, it's why you tend not to be able to write a good novel until you're a bit older at least typically because just the ability to look at the layers of of an experience doesn't really tend to come until you're a good bit past it um but yeah it's uh the reason why i think and this ties into i think um the prevalence of absurdity and intense nihilism uh on in online culture and when it was big with like weird Twitter and, uh, like, uh, Vaporwave and those kinds of, like, splinter movements. Um, it's because your brain just sort of gets overwhelmed here with how constant it is. 
it's mm. to a point where even even if you are incredibly sensitive at a certain point you're you're you just become psychically numb from overstimulation like you aren't numb because you are insensitive you are numb because you are because of the fact that your brain can only process so much of this at a point yeah and then that's like that bit from the simpsons where all the where the doctor is explaining to mr burns how he (laughs) actually has he's so sick that he uh cannot get sick because it's like all the germs have uh blocked the one door into his body (laughs) yeah and and the people who get so sensitive to it, they, they pick a little thing, usually cultural and usually very inconsequential to be super, super sensitive about. It'll be like yeah. shipping in Legend of Korra. Or, uh, and well, that's, I, yeah, I, I think we see that a lot with, um, yeah, it's like we imagine it sometimes it's just randos being mad on the internet about some dumb bullshit, which is technically true. That is technically what's happening. But it only happens because you are so overloaded with stress and anxiety that, frankly, there's no answer to. Like, there's, it's, um, that, that, yeah, it, something becomes a lightning rod to all this ambient, uh, eschatological anxiety that, that you just carry around with you. Um, cause we have, like, we have a mass shooting nearly every day in America, um, there is the number of like uh, black deaths by police officers um, just doesn't doesn't seem to fucking stop. It seems like if you stop following it for like two days, you'll look back and there's like seven more people, and that's like whole lives that you yeah it just, it just sort of like swims out beyond beyond comprehension, and I think it flies also a little bit in the face of. Um, that classic Stalin quote of, uh, you know, um, death of millions is a, a the death of one is a tragedy. The death of millions is a t- statistic. Yeah, that one. Mm-hmm. That it flies in the face of that because the the uglier, harder thing is we know that these are millions of people. It just forms this megalithic object that. It's like a pitch black labyrinth. We just don't know how to get into it. Or once you're in it, it it doesn't it feels like more corridors are being added to this horrible apocalyptic labyrinth rather than uh rather than a statistic. Like if it were a statistic, it wouldn't affect people at all. But even the right wing is driven mad by all this bullshit. That's why they're carrying out this violence. I don't think insanity and madness are the same, to be to be clear with that. I'm not saying it's a mental health thing. I'm saying that there is a kind of... There is a kind of at least rhetorical madness to mass violence, um, to being able to carry that out. That you can be sane and do it, because those aren't the same... Those aren't the same metric, but... Yeah, like, it, it's just the impossible fucking question. How do you... How does someone pick up a gun, say that, like, some stuff has come out from, like, what the guy said on his Gab account, and just the horrible fucking racist things he said about mm. uh, Jewish people and Jewish communities, and then go into a place of worship during an act of worship on what happens to be also a very holy day for Jews? 
like I, it doesn't. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then like, I, I want to say that I have a lot of, I am just fucking staggered by the insane, uh, bravery and kindness of a lot of my, uh, a lot of my Jewish friends who took, who took this moment of a horrible, horrible spotlight to specifically say that they were mad that this would likely get more play than any of the innocent unarmed black deaths or trans deaths or things like that in America Hmm. or abroad. That, like, the ability to witness something that is disruptively, hyperbolically violent towards your community and go we are suffering this in solidarity with others who suffer like this. I, I just was like that. Yeah. I. Mm. Yeah. That, that's cool. That's very cool. Of people who are able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, we got to talk about books though. It seems like a very poetry after Auschwitz thing as it always does. Um, and the book we're going to talk about is uh the Feral Detective by Jonathan. I found out it's actually Lethem, not Lethem. Huh. But I know. Years I've been saying Lethem. Literally is... never knew that. Yeah. So not only, uh, well, I was going to say we're not really entertaining, but uh, this episode has been kind of a downer so far, I think we could say. But uh, yeah. it was also quite educational for people that we've now told people it's actually Lethem. Um, it's also Paulinic, uh, not Palinuk, or you know, so I am not gonna say his name correctly. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't deserve <laughs> it. Um, he's had a even worse few decades than Jonathan Leatham. Uh, but um, yeah, so introduction. Uh, Jonathan Leatham. He started out uh, in I, I think the early nineties with a string of sci-fi novels. Uh, Philip K. Dick was a big influence. Also Raymond Chandler. Um, his first novel, um, Gun with Occasional Music, was kind of a little semi-breakthrough. It was, it, I think it was, got a Nebula Award nominee. Yeah, uh, it did. Yeah. It, his, it's, it's still probably, in my opinion, far and away is his best book. Like, anyone who, anyone who wants to know why people care about this guy should read that one. And you'll be like, oh... And then the rest of this horrible tragedy will make a lot more sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so uh, fast forward to 1999, he comes out with Motherless Brooklyn. And that's like, uh, that that was a bestseller. And it was, which his previous stuff, it was well reviewed, but hadn't been. And uh, I think people still love Motherless Brooklyn. It's getting made into a film. Um, it's got, uh, what's his name, Edward Norton attached. Uh, I really like Motherless Brooklyn. Um, I haven't actually read Gun with Occasional Music, but Motherless Brooklyn is is really damn good. Um, it's about a private detective with Tourette syndrome, uh, not actual Tourette syndrome, by the way. It's like the fake Tourette syndrome you see in movies where they like shout crazy words. Tourette syndrome in real life is actually a really terrible and very debilitating condition, but this is like wacky Tourette's. So he has that, and he's also a private detective, and it's it's pretty funny. It's pretty it's pretty good detective story too, and um, that got him a lot of praise. And he's 
yeah, to sum up his career, has been kind of coasting on Motherless Brooklyn ever since. He's had about, I think, six books out, some short story collections, novellas, lots of nonfiction. Um, wrote the intro to the collected works of Philip K. Dick, uh, the, I think the Library of America edition. Wrote on you know, Bob Dylan. Uh, wrote. He, he wrote a book on uh, Fear of Music by Talking Heads. He did, yeah. And he worked with um, that guy from Sonic Youth. I can't remember his name. Not one of the main guys from Sonic Youth. By which I mean Kim Gordon. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Was it that guy Ronaldo or whatever? I think, yeah, I think it was Lee Ronaldo. He wrote music with Lee Ronaldo. Uh, yes, it was. Um, yeah, he, he also was the, um, probably the thing that people are most happy with him for since Motherless Brooklyn, um, was, uh, being picked out and then acting as a fairly competent editor of the exegesis of Philip K. Dick, which hmm. for for people who are fans of Philip K. Dick, I'll say that and they'll go, ah, um, for people yeah. who aren't, um, when Philip K. Dick had his famous mental breakdown that took over maybe the last like third of his career, um, he journaled extensively like every single day. Um, and it is at once a work of staggering creative genius and also a heartbreaking work of mental illness that clearly was affecting him quite a lot, um, and substance abuse. Um, and the estate has, like, these thousands of pages of his journals, and uh, Lethem, uh, with the aid of the estate, went over and combed through to publish, like, I think it's like one or two thousand pages of the journals and pretty much everyone who's from like a moderate to higher philip k dick fan went out and got a copy of it um mm-hmm. yeah because it's like i have one on my shelf i imagine you have one on your shelf um yeah i, I did it's been yeah when i moved abroad it all my books had to be sold that, but, um, yeah i understand yeah. that but uh yeah. yes i had it i wrote my um graduating dissertation on philip k dick's late stuff um yeah philip k dick is big for me and, um, yeah, it's, uh, he's pretty big for, for everyone. Now, at least, he's pretty big for everyone. Yeah. And, um, and Leafham's a, a kind of part of that. He he made the push along along with a lot of other people in a lot yeah. of other... And that's, like, that's one people. of the big things that, um, that uh, at least his early stuff uh, into his mid-period served as, where he was very openly and very proudly both a Raymond Chandler kind of... Um, acolyte but also philip k dick acolyte when philip k dick was still seen as like oh the guy who wrote the story that total recall is based on that guy's not Mm. not credible um because it's uh it's one of the funny things with literary fiction that like anyone who's involved in it for long enough um becomes aware that it has its own genre conventions just like any other genre and how it how it grapples with things, its own modalities, things like that, um, which is fine. That's not good or bad. Um, but the literary world tends to sometimes be del- seemingly deliberately oblivious to that, that they are creating more or less a blind spot based on, I like this mode, so therefore work outside of this mode, even if it's grappling with similar ideas, is somehow juvenile automatically. Not that there isn't juvenile genre fiction, but, you know, it, there's sort of that easy cast off of, like, all of it's juvenile because it's not realist or uh, hyper-realist literary fiction. Um, and this is weird in a certain way because certain genres get 
tagged as now they're literary based on a seemingly random selection. Like detective novels went from being uh, cheap absolute horseshit to uh, like high literary work at some point. It's seemingly in the in the eighties or so when this was like, no, they're uh, they're good now. Except the 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 supermarket ones, those are still bad. And someone else might be like, well, what's the difference? And they're like, shut up. Um, and likewise, like Westerns in the past 20-ish years or so have gotten like a literary resurgence when, you know, for decades and decades and decades, they were the uh, Patricia Cornwell bullshit novels of their time. Mm-hmm. And now those same authors are looked at as creating, you know, American literary canon. Um, and Philip K. Dick was and sci-fi in general were very much in that kind of um, uh, genre ghettoization. And Lethem helped go like, no, there's a lot of really cool creative ideas and interesting ways to approach problems. And if we like, you know, these kinds of psychic, like how can we like uh, Pinchon and not like Philip K. Dick? Is it because one has a little bit more sci-fi in it than the other, but also the transmigration of Timothy Archer is has far less sci-fi than a lot of uh, Pinchon's work, and that seemed to break through. Hmm. Yeah, so yeah, we can we can dig in for that, but um, yeah, he's not been on a great streak lately. No. Uh, yeah, I've given a lot of his books the time of day, and uh, haven't finished a whole lot of them. The ones have been published this last decade or two. Uh, Chronic City was pretty middling. Uh, Dissonant Gardens was supposed to be a kind of return to form, but it wasn't too much. Um, he, I didn't even know he released one in 2016 called A Gambler's Anatomy. Yeah, that, I literally did not know about that at all. Yeah, um, that just... Someone buried that. Maybe it was like the, the last book of his like contract or something, and he just like yeah, threw it out just to get it done. But... Um, yeah, that apparently exists. So Gambler's Anatomy. Maybe it's like his great undiscovered work, but probably not. Uh, Fortress of Solitary was pretty interesting, but not brilliant. It had a you know, kind of sci-fi fantasy conceit and a magic ring. But um, You Don't Love Me Yet, Chronic City, Distant Gardens, Gambler's Anatomy, and now Feral Detective. There's been a pretty uh, long and uninterrupted string of kind of duds. And... So, Feral Detective, though. So, uh, do you want to give a summary? Because yeah. uh, you you probably would be better at giving the summary. I'm I'm I have my fixations with the book <laughs> that are <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, I'll bird's eye view, and you can go down to like the micro details then. Uh, so, okay. So, Phoebe is a New Yorker reporter or minor functionary at the New Yorker. Uh, her friend's daughter, um, Arabella, is missing in California. Uh, she went to Reed College, as I did, so go read. Um, go our non-existent sports teams. And, um, yeah, it doesn't have any sports teams or fraternities. It's in paradise. It has a huge comic book library, though. Brilliant college. Um, and, uh, yeah, so she is missing California. Um it turns out that she's shacked up with a one of two cults of weird ex-hippies who are the kind of fallout of a utopian experiment in the Mojave Desert gone wrong. 
Um, Phoebe teams up with the titular feral detective, a guy named um, fuck, I can't even remember his name. He had a he had a dumb kind of pinch on his name. Uh, it was like Heist, yeah, Charles Heist. And uh, that's not his real name. He has a, a background with the uh, aforementioned cults. Um, Phoebe and him fall in love very quickly and kind of without much justification. At least I didn't think so. Um, and um, yeah, then they find Phoebe and yay. Um, but it was also written in 2016 or according to a interview with Lethem who I've, I've probably called Lethem a few times actually but yes Lethem in Vulture he wrote a lot of it then I think inserted a ton of stuff about Trump uh, it's not there's not too much of it but every now and then you'll get the this needle being inserted into my bare eye of something like that hideous orange orangutan in the white house with his sauron like tower in manhattan and it has zero zero consequence or relevance to the plot and that's that starts hitting on my ugly fixation so I'll admit to being a bigger Lethem fan of of the two of us. I, I even... So I'm going to say that I liked his works between Motherless Brooklyn and now, but um, I, I'll, I'll at least temper that with... I thought there were a lot of... His prose is always the thing that's drawn me in, and I can look past... Oh yeah, past his prose kind of... is un, unimpeachable. It's always very good. But, uh, yeah, yeah I, I can look. I can look past some kind of naff like plots or like thematic threads that seem not to pay off too much because it, he'll he'll pull an interesting concept or he'll weave you know an interesting layering of things. And his prose is really good. And I'm like, I, you know, it's the junk food of a literary fiction reader is just good prose about nothing mm-hmm. at all. Um, no, that's fine. Like um, the fact that he has. Um, Gun with occasional music. His first three novels, I think, are just fucking great. Like, like, don't get praised enough. They're absolutely incredible. And Motherless Brooklyn, I like a lot, but I don't think it's his his best one, but still really good. The fact that he has those, I'm willing to be like, okay, this guy can just coast for a bit. That's fine. This one hit on that. Um, we were talking about it a little bit before we started recording, and I've been talking about it a bit on Twitter, but it just. It, it we've talked about this before in previous episodes too of like he's trying valiantly at some points to engage with the question of uh Trump and rising fascism and horrible um horrible violence that we're seeing with a cle- like a very clear political motive that like even even mainstream non-politics followers can armchair pretty easily of like, oh, this is, things are getting ugly in a way that I can recognize. But it's like, what are you, like, I get what you're trying to do. I sympathize with what you're trying to do. But like, Jesus, man, you are, like, it doesn't, it, it feels like watching him ramble in a certain way. Hmm. Like the novel feels 
I, I feel like those were able to be inserted because the novel itself also isn't exactly airtight. Oh, God, it, no. It has, it has exactly the same kind of problem that, like, um, Pinchon's gone through a similar thing, where aside from Mason and Dixon, which is, like, a late career masterwork from him, um, like, uh, they've just been exceptionally messy books from mm. Pinchon, where, where yeah. it's his prose style, but it literally feels like you picked up a nearly unedited manuscript, which is, if anything, in the literary world, the only major critique of David Foster Wallace that people keep coming back to, because there's a handful that have their pockets, is that his bigger works feel not edited enough, even with how historically edited they were. Um, And this Lethem book just felt like a slimmer version of that, where Mm. I... Yeah, it felt like Inherent Vice. Like, yeah. I was constantly reminded of Inherent Vice all the way through this. And they're not even that similar when I, like, zoom out and look at them. But, uh, yeah, I, I was feeling Inherent Vice, and Inherent Vice did a lot of these things better. And it was a Pynchon books, even the prose, which in this is good, was better in Pynchon. But, um, yeah, and... Uh... Anyway, sorry, you were saying... Oh, like I like I completely forgot about the the detective, or I would have forgotten about the detective thread because there are so many other things that seem to pop up, and he'd riff for a little bit and then move on. Um, except for the fact that he would, um, like kind of annoyingly bring up bring up both the mystery and dumb shit about Trump just that like out out of nowhere, just in hmm. the middle of. And it felt like he didn't, it almost felt like he hadn't fully decided what he wanted the book to do precisely, and had just put all this stuff in there, in the pot, Mm, and instead of going back with an editor's knife and going like, okay, um, do I want to write a book about Trump, or do I want to write a mystery novel, or do I want to write a book with these wacky scenarios in them, he just sort of forcibly stapled these ideas together. Mm. And it's the kind of thing that like, I, I have a lot more patience for that kind of thing from a, from a writer who's younger or earlier in their career. Cause it feels like, okay, that kind of structural instability is something that, uh, something that I can expect someone who hasn't written too many novels to do. Cause I haven't even figured out how to perfectly grapple with that. But yeah, I mean, I was watching, yesterday uh the film sorry to bother you and that was uh boots riley's first film and it was like every five minutes there was a new cool idea and you can tell it was just all the cool ideas that boots riley has had in his life and he's just getting them all onto the screen at once and that was kind of a little like this although there was a yeah there was just the three ideas mystery utopian commune gone wrong and let's talk about Trump a bit. It was kind of in much the same way as Crudo and um, was that Gary Steingart one that was also awful. Yeah, uh, that, yeah. that one was the worst of these three, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah can, very much so. easily put that on the bottom. Yeah, yeah I, I think this might get... It, this is better than Crudo. Yeah, I think of the three, this is the best, but doesn't make I, it good. Yeah, but, it's like... Um, Crudo was the most exciting, I think, because that was that author's first piece of fiction. And while I don't think she's actually going to carry out her 
insane idea to return to this every 10 years. That's just like, I don't know any writer who can actually plan that far in advance. Um, which sort of opens up the thing. Any, anytime you hear someone be like, I planned all nine of these books in advance, they are fucking lying to you. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, See George R.R. R. Martin. Yeah, that's it's like, a, that's, you, he's you, you just make it up as you go. Yeah. Um, but this one was, was better to read, but it was also a lot more frustrating because it's, when I, when I wasn't talking about fiction, like, with you on this in front of other people, enjoying Jonathan Lethem just sort of phoning it in was a lot easier to do. Hmm. Cause it'd be like, oh, I picked it up for, you know, I picked this book up for nine bucks or something, waited till there was a sale, waited till I had a coupon or something. Oh yeah, I've never right. bought a Jonathan Lethem book full price. And then, like, read, read, like, 50 to 60% of the book, like, in, like, two or three days. To be fair, even here, his his prose just rattles off. Like, it's Hmm. super-duper readable without sacrificing literary meat to it. It's just, which is something that, that's one of the reasons people keep fixing their eye on him. It's like, oh, you're a literary fiction guy that, like, doesn't make people psychically tired to read. Hmm. Um, Yeah. But, yeah, and then I would, I'd normally, like you were saying, I'd normally just stop there. Because it's like, okay, I got what I came here for. But being forced to confront, like, I didn't fucking care by the time they found TV. I did, I was, <laughs> I did not fucking care. I was like, I, oh, I forgot we were doing that. I guess mm. it's done. Yeah. And then they go to a spa. Have a nice time in a spa. And, um... Yeah. It adds up to the classic thing of like this would have been an interesting novella if we chopped off maybe the first twenty, thirty pages. It actually it gets going pretty quick, but then like cut just entirely cut, like maybe the last fifty or something like that. Yeah, so we'll talk about I wanted to talk about a few things about this book, we'll, um, but we'll do them after some a musical interlude. Um from Florida's Tampa, Florida's Hate Eternal. And these are some Jesus. other Christ, I love this band. Yeah, they are some ugly fucking dudes. I'm looking at the band photo. Yeah, these they barely so, human. They're gorgeous. Brief background for uh, for anyone who doesn't know this band. Uh, one fuck off. Uh, two, uh, if you haven't fucked off. Um, uh, it's always been a trio. It's led by Eric Rutan. Um, he rose to prominence because he was the uh, second guitarist in Morbid Angel for a while during the hot streak that they had um, prior to uh, prior to I, which we were just we just don't ever talk about. Um, but like uh, Formula's Fatal to Flesh, he was on that one. Gateways, he was on that one. Um, just and one of the only guitar players they've ever had who can keep up with Trey Azikthoff and really give it back, but is also like a fucking whip ass songwriter. Um, and, uh, when Morbid Angel started to get kinda, kinda iffy, um, he just jumped ship and has been making just fucking ripping death metal since then. Like, there's a bit of tech stuff in it, there's a bit of some avant-garde and some proggy stuff in it, but he also keeps it just fucking brutal. Jesus Christ, I love this band. Yeah. <laughs> also, so apparently, good. he is the nicest guy in extreme metal. There are a lot I, of nice guys in the Florida death metal scene. I've heard, like, I've heard that from a lot of people, though. Like, um, obituary what is it? Uh, are, are lovely. Obituary are some of the yeah. loveliest guys. 
I had to interview them a long time back. They were so nice. It was like it was like talking to like a, a really lovely uncle. They were just like, yeah, it was so cool. And yeah, well, hey, uh, come to our show. We'll have a beer. I, I didn't take them up on that. But um, and it wasn't yes. me. It wasn't them. But uh, yeah, a lot of nice guys in Florida death metal. But uh, yeah, this guy's nice. This guy's nice. I'll, t I'll take your word for that. They got some great t-shirts too. These are actually yeah. like, I would wear one of these. Also, uh, Eric Tan has uh, gotten big recently doing a lot of uh, production work for other bands that um, trying to look at some stuff that he's uh, produced. Yeah, I, I've seen his name. Ah, oh, God, uh, it's going to hit me in a second. I know it was, I think it was like something I played last week, wasn't it? But uh, um, he, oh, he apparently did some production on uh, All Eternal's deck by the Mountain Goats. Oh, oh he's done all the production on the map past four Cannibal Corpse records for nice. one, which yeah. have all sounded just fucking great. Um, he's produced a ton of stuff with Goat Whore. Um, yeah, just yeah, it's incredible. Uh, yeah, I, I know um, John Darnell is a fan. Yeah, but uh, so if John Darnell, the very very unlikely event you're listening. Um, I love you more than anyone. I love you more than my wife and child. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And I literally cried when you followed me back on Twitter. Um, <laughs> true story. And I was at work. I um, lost my cool when he did that, too. Also, he has been extremely supportive to me in private about, like, his writing and in general and stuff like that. It's, he, again, no, another insanely nice person. Like, way more nice than he needs to be. I'm just some random fucking guy. And he's like, yo, you have a vision. And it's a good vision. And you gotta work mm. at it. And I'm like, this means so much to me. <laughs> I know. Right? Uh, okay. Um, before I crawl through Skype and choke you out of jealousy, because he's never said that to me. But, and maybe he thinks... No, anyway, uh, let's listen to What Lies Beyond by Hate Eternal.
Yeah, and that was What Lies Beyond from Hate Eternal, off their new one, Upon Desolate Sands. The... I love that horseshit, stupid guitar bit at the end of that song. <laughs> yeah, I love the front cover, which is like actually a really well done painting, really well composed. The light and uh, is really good, and there's like a arrow sticking out of a vulture's head. Yeah, they've Pretty... had they've had the same uh, artist for them for the past two records, doing similar kinds of art. Oh yeah, um... his last one is real nice. Yeah, yeah it's, it's... this guy's got talent. Yeah, uh, they just—they really fucking nail it. Yeah, these guys are just like—they and... should be bigger than they are, and they're what? definitely what? pretty big. While we're talking about things that make me happy instead of the the book, which makes me feel uncomfortable and sad, <laughs> um, and the world, which makes me feel horrible, um, this week has been fucking gnarly for death metal. Like the Hate Eternal record dropped, and that's. I just played a tracker. It was fucking great. If you don't like yeah. that, you don't like death metal. No, um, you don't. A new so Cryptopsy EP came out, mm -hmm. um, and that they're, they sound like Cryptopsy still. Um, they only have that one record where they decided to be a deathcore band and shit. <laughs> and then they stopped. Thankfully, they, they stopped. Um, and they, they made that one video. Uh, look up Cryptopsy <gasps> video. You'll, you'll know which one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah love that video oh that that made me feel horrible when that came yeah. out that was oh, that, talk I've about showed... a knife to the gut from your heroes <laughs> yeah. i've showed so many normie friends that video and they're Just... like you like this and you're like no no not this <laughs> i don't like this <laughs> i like that it exists <laughs> um but the, yeah the blood death bath record that came out um oh yeah i this heard week good things about that as well Saint it is very much like a Nightmares Made Flesh 2. And that, that's the record with Eaton on it. Um, mm -hmm. Just, they've, they've reestablished a kind of uh, groove over technicality vibe on this one that is really satisfying. All, all the songs are stupid. We got one called Blood Aside. What's that? <laughs> who, who fucking, who knows, man? Chainsaw like Lullaby? Okay, this okay, all sounds man. like it's on Metal Apocalypse or something, right? I'm like, I'm, I'm in, yeah. <laughs> kill my blood, man. <laughs> <laughs> or killed by blood, or yeah, oh, fuck it. I, I don't mind blood aside. That's awesome, right? I'm like, I, I love, I love death metal. This is, it's important. The beauty of death metal is that for the most part, it, it is as intelligent and intellectual as a Van Halen album. Or being drunk on beer. Um, and that's mm. good. Yep, it is. Uh, but yeah, Hate Eternal. Uh, I think their album is out. Yeah, yep. it is. It's, yeah, it came out, out on Friday. A couple, couple of days ago. So yeah, uh, check that one out. And I think they're probably on tour soon. Uh, but yeah, real good band. But uh, yeah, let's go back to Jonathan Leatham, uh, who I like less than death metal. But Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> He provides a similar, well, not similar, but uh, I was going to say like, whoa, he, he's like, point me in okay. the direction of these no, no, secret I, Jonathan Leatham novels. Yeah, he's uh, no, I mean, he's he's the drunk on beer of uh, literary fiction. He's yeah, uh, he, he is to be fair a lot more fun to read than. To be fair, if you have fun reading Life in the Time of Cholera, you're a bad person. But um... Yeah, he's like... Uh, of the Jonathans, he's clearly the best one. 
And he actually mentions Jonathan Safran Furr in this. Maybe, I don't know, He's maybe that was... the worst Jonathan. Oh, by far. Um, <laughs> and he mentions his vegetarian book. Uh, and I, I don't know if that was shade. I don't know if there's like inter-Jonathan beef here going on. But... Um, I feel like to, well, to use a sports metaphor, which I know are very popular here, I feel like that would be like picking on the Cleveland Browns uh, in that they are the weakest, and so you refrain from directly shading them on account of that would technically be bullying. I, I think he's got like... Um, they're both like the betas to the alpha uh, Jonathan Franzen, so they've got like squabble between them for like what's left. Jonathan Franzen is... I've just called him an alpha, by the way. Yeah, I, I don't know how to grapple with that. He is the most popular of them, which is horrible. Oh, yeah. No. Would Jonathan Sanford 4 be more popular on account no. of his two shit books about 9-11 and whatever are... No, uh, Franzen has the corrections. I was Oprah Book Club, and he, he's it was still... All, that one was almost good. It was close. Mm. I, I okay, read that, I read that, that really be, recently, so I'm... That might be strong to say it was close to good, I'll admit that. But you're like, I get why people are talking about this guy. It just is, he's never had sex and is convinced that he needs to write about it anyway. Mm. That beautiful tweet from uh, Trisha Lockwood of uh, his wife talking <laughs> to him. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm giving birth to the next great American novel. It flips a burger. But, uh, yeah, that, that that was that was the best thing that Jonathan Franzen has tangentially produced in this world. Was that tweet about him? I I, I really hope he's. Laugh. I, he doesn't use the internet, so I hope someone I, printed that out and handed yeah, it to him. I hope someone mails it to his enormous apartment overlooking Central Park. What a fucking but, knob! Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, but uh, Leafham. So one of the things that I, the ideas that I like, and I like a lot of ideas in Jonathan Leafham's stuff, uh, was the, um, that it was both, it was kind of pre-apocalyptic, and which is kind of cool for where we are, well not cool, but it's kind of (laughs) relevant for where we are right now. I, I was kind of reading it a bit with uh, reference to that UN climate report that came out recently that said we've got 12 years left. It was oddly specific on 12. Um, and, you know, that kind of faded into the background of, like, the cacophony of awfulness. But that was kind of, like, that was kind of big, you know? Yeah. 12, 12 years, then everything's I gone. I think we all just looked at that and were like, Fuck! Yeah, um, and someone's like, "What do we say about this?" And they're like, "I don't fucking, I, I don't know. I'm having a panic attack." Yeah, I'm, like, I'm just writing so... mood over and over. It's just <laughs> is this a big mood? I don't know. So it's like, is. and that's it's like, tea, should sis. We just, should we just ignore this then? And we're all like, "Yeah, I, I literally am again. I'm gonna have a panic attack." But uh, yeah, I, I was reading that in reference to this because there's like a um. And into and with um, a lesser known but still really awesome article that uh, Douglas Rushkoff put out on Medium a while ago. It got a little bit of play about 
consulting work he's doing for billionaires who are building bunkers in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes, but it's um, it was really interesting. How these like yeah. Silicon Valley tech billionaires are all they know what's coming and they they've actually got the money to do shit about it. So they're yeah. building armed armored bunkers in New Zealand and covering them with armed guards, and they want to know. How do they make their armed guards not rebel and kill them and eat them? It, should they like, use? Legit, he talks about that in the article. Like, yeah, that, that's, that's a, not a, exaggeration. That's their real concern at the moment. Not like actually preventing the apocalypse, just how they can still be feudal lords after the apocalypse. But um, and that kind of comes up in the book. Uh, there's a the mountain that's the one of the two factions of ex hippies is on is also a bunker for some i think it was like korean people billionaires in, from korea and they're all these two factions the bears and the rabbits the bears are like mostly male and tough biker looking guys and the rabbits are mostly female and more like actual like hippie hippies um it's kind of like uh, Altamont, as in like Stone, uh, Stone, Rolling Stones, and Hell's Angels gets brought up a couple of times, and that's kind of relevant here, like the death of the hippie dream, and th that part kind of is going to more stick with me than the detective parts, or the, especially the Trump parts, because it's it's more relevant to where we're going, and that's the kind of part that I wish more writers were thinking about, and. Um, kind of ringing the alarm bell on a little bit because if you've got a platform as big as Jonathan Leatham's or any of the Jonathan's then you know you, you want to put out there that you know we got 12 years and billionaires have known about that for probably the last 20 and they're making the preparations so we kind of got to do that too yeah it which I think that segues nicely into something that um we've talked about um, a lot and we're talking about a bit before this, which is on one hand, while I'm, it's weird. I'm a split mind. I'm 100% sympathetic to that. It feels like this obvious hole in like almost every book we've read. Um, that it's just, it's this unspoken specter haunting everything of this like ecological apocalypse that, seems to be bearing down on us. Um, and also the, the horrible political climate as well. And that's where, like, I allowed his willingness to let his book be disrupted by the horseshit nature of the Trump presidency, but also it didn't benefit the book. But then the question of, like, what the fuck could he possibly write that wouldn't feel just flippant? Or, like, capitalize, especially since he does this as a job, like, what would feel like he wasn't capitalizing on an impending, effectively apocalyptic event? Like, even if it doesn't end everything, it would be a uh, moment of global transmogrification, to use one of my big words that I spent all that money learning. Yeah, it's like, the only book you can write is, what, The Road? You just keep writing The Road over and over? Yeah, and title and it's it. Like, this is actually going to happen during your life. And it's like that. It how how bullshit is it that the book that isn't even that is maybe maybe the worst Cormac McCarthy book is the one that's just the most accurate about 
Um, although I would argue also the Blood Meridian is exactly as uh, relevant in that horrible things happen to people who aren't good anyway, and evil wins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Blood yeah, Meridian is... I mean, they're both really good. He's... Uh, I, I liked the road a lot. That's uh... I I like I like the road more after having read other stuff because that felt like him responding to critics saying that he's just that he gets off on being scaldingly nihilistic by going like no the center of this story is that something like the love of family whether chosen or or by blood is something that can persist and has value even in this and it's because you place value in something like the bonds of love um, in the face of horror that makes it so powerful. And I was like, oh, that's actually, in retro- having read other stuff by him, the road isn't nearly as dour as people painted it. It's it's one of his more hopeful books. Mm, yeah. Like, the environment is bad, but, like, that guy loves his son. <laughs> mm, yeah. yeah. It even has a happy ending. I mean, yeah. It has, like, a literal happy ending. But, um, yeah, it's, but, um, yeah, they get, but I mean, it's, it, so uh, to address sort of, I guess, one of the elephants in the room, we keep getting distracted from talking about this book because I guess <laughs> it's so easily distractible. Like it, yeah. it touches on things, but it never felt like it grabbed me by the throat. Hmm. Because it's so unfocused, it's hard to focus on it. Yeah, like, it rips on stuff, and, again, I'm sympathetic to Jonathan Lethem going... So, one great idea in it, he went back to a mystery format, which he does better than these sort of other formats that he's he's done. But then he derailed that with going into one of his, like, the many steric goat style, like, too absurd to be real, too stupid to be fake kind of storylines of the utopian thing. It's like, okay, that would have been cool, but the two storylines felt like they just kept disrupting each other rather than adding to one another. And then the political stuff was like, okay, clearly your mind is there because everyone's mind is there. And you looked at your own book and went, in 2018, I cannot publish a wacky novel about, you know, solving a crime and going to a utopian thing in the face of what's happening. It will, it will feel crass if I do mm. that. Like, I can't just write a book. Things are too horrible. I have to address this somehow. And it's like, I get all of that, but the book isn't that great. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it's painful, and it makes it feel... It's more calming to look at the book and then riff off of it and just go off in a direction like we had been doing <laughs> than look at, like... Yeah, like, end of the day, we could summarize everything we feel about the book in, like, two minutes of, like, all the ingredients are fine, and the prose is good. It just doesn't cohere even a little bit. <laughs> no, it's just... Yeah, I've, I've forgotten so much about this book because it just was never really focused on the things it was about. Uh, any of the things, it didn't do them justice, it didn't... Like I said, the romance was just seemed to happen. Yeah, I, I did not care which, about that. Yeah, I know. Which and which is supposed to spur a big rescue mission at the end, which is utterly incoherent. And there was, yeah, 
it was either like a huge mega novel or it was a bunch of unconnected novellas but it wasn't it wasn't what we got like he could very easily cut out the trump stuff there there was he he didn't grapple with um trump at all he mentioned it in the same way as crudo mentioned it It, in the same way crudo would be about kathy acker uh, eating some food then she looks at twitter and oh boy that orange man has done it again it it wasn't it wasn't grappling it wasn't engaging with trump it was mentioning him obligatory mentioning him um yeah it it did like you said just was like just okay i've written a novel in 2016 i guess i'm gonna have to tick this box and now that i've ticked this box uh, vulture has something to write about when they write a thing about it which you know prevents them from like sitting down and reading the book and thinking oh do not care about this um even like the the titular character the eponymous feral detective seems i i, I can see let leafham's going for making him quirky and interesting but uh he misses the mark he's grindingly dull phoebe the um kind of twee bookish new yorker is a much more interesting character because not saying something because she is not an interesting character (laughs) she is i don't disagree with you that she's more interesting but it's also like she's a horrible cliche but he feels like a non-entity and i think so to to return to something that um i know i grappled with a lot as as a writer um and i think anyone who writes even casually sort of grapples with it at some point. There's that whole Vomigit quote that's a really well-intentioned bit of writing that, like, everyone wants a protagonist they can sympathize with um, to hang... Like, if you're going to hang the hat of your novel on some main character to drive the plot, you want it to be someone that the readers care about. But we sometimes view caring about someone as you are sympathetic to them, you relate to them, you think they are likable... Um, and that doesn't have to be the case. There's, especially if you're, I'm just going to say it in these terms, if you are a grown fucking adult, you can read a book driven by someone that you hate or that is nothing like you, uh, or various things like that, because that's, that's the empathetic element of fiction. Yeah, i.e. Cherry, which which we read last week, which was amazing and was, yeah. uh, yeah, which, and I didn't get to show up on that episode for scheduling stuff, but yeah, that book is fucking great. It was, um, yeah, absolutely horrible. Human being uh, in was the protagonist, and maybe even wrote it. But um, yeah, it was a great book. Um, and so, like, bringing that up because I don't want our comments about the main character of this book to be misread as like he wasn't likable, so therefore that's what. No, he was just dull. Like that's the thing. It's like what drives good adult literary fiction is that you get presented this core it's why we can we haven't had it and you ride a very dangerous line doing it but in theory you can have really powerful work about what makes someone a fascist what radicalizes someone in such a horrible way like you can you can engage with that and reveal the the bloody ulcerated uh heart of of this person Mm. and this just felt like yeah 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. To bring that up, I like not encouraging people necessarily to just throw their hat in the ring on on that mark of because it's one of those things you have to be really honest with yourself of like, am I doing a good job or am I just doing it? And for this, for that kind of endeavor of engaging with what radicalizes someone in that manner, do I really want to put my name on something that isn't doing it well? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean. I think uh, writers and agents and publishers are probably very, very scared of those books. Maybe one will come along and it'll be amazing. I very much doubt it'll be written by anyone who's currently writing. Yeah. But um, yeah, if if one comes along and it is about a, uh, it could be about anything from like a fourteen-year-old Kekistani to a guy like the guy in Pittsburgh, but it's it would have to be. It would have to be an instant classic, of because if it uh, doesn't, if it shoots for that and it misses, then yeah, it's gonna, yeah, it it won't go well. Yeah, it also runs the same kind of line of like, um, so uh, anyone who reads books a lot has, uh, let's just say, views on Brett Easton Ellis, and they're all <laughs> basically the same view, and none of them are very good, uh, <laughs> or positive rather, um. But even saying that, I think one of the things that's somewhat frustrating is seeing the rhetoric around something like American Psycho as saying the book itself is um, merely and grandiloquently um, misogynistic, and which which I think at some point requires you to in any way not realize that Patrick Bateman is the villain of the story. He just is also the main character of the story. Like yeah, at every just... moment, you're you're supposed to revile him. Well, he's um, a cool guy who has a great morning routine. So and he does business, so he's probably an awesome guy. And so and so sometimes reads in the book that rely on me going like, well, uh, it's designed for you to in any way, at any point, sympathize with him. Therefore, the violence that he does has this political. T- it's like, well, no, he's. It's a comment on the misogynistic nature of that world. That, but yeah it's like even with something that feels so blindingly obvious like that where even name checks uh sart with the one scene with uh he looks at the exit sign and it literally is flashing no exit um which is like like got it i yeah i've read that too man (laughs) um uh i went to university once Uh (laughs) uh-huh but uh that if something like that can even um fall kind of flat and make it seem even even to dullards like an endorsement like really interrogating yeah it raises it raises the thing that i think it like it wouldn't be undue of us to have this being like a recurring like separate episode thing that we would do but how do you cope with how do you engage with where we are politically right now and if we can't engage with it in literary fiction what are we writing literary fiction about like, what's the point of this whole endeavor if we can't? And now, obviously, that's not to say that everyone should just go out and do it, because it then raises the question, like, because of what you're saying, that the method matters. If you fuck up trying to engage with why the fuck are we here, um, you can accidentally come across like you're defending the thoughts of these shitheads. But yeah. it's like... See, I had a... I had a idea about that and like what we should be writing now to properly engage with this moment 
And it kind of came up as I was reading this and how it brings up a lot of the like 60s uh, dropping out culture where mi literally millions of people would go off into the woods and try and start communes there. And maybe the thing to be writing right now isn't the you know, portrait of a Kek young, the artist as a young Kekistani. It's maybe it's like a utopian book. Maybe it's like if things went well, if we got the things, you know, a kind of this is the future the left wants. Uh, maybe even like a Star Trek kind of thing, you know, how utopian and idealistic the like Gene Roddenberry's original ideas for that were. Maybe that's what this phase needs more than more than even looking at the um, the other side. More than even like looking at Trump, because I mean, some very talented writers are looking at the Trump era and they're producing shit yeah we've yeah it's come up on the show and there's, and there's a lot of people like uh barbara king's lovers doing it and there's a lot of like very smart people i mean none of the the writers like steingart uh olivia lang and now um jonathan Leatham are bad writers steingart to an extent but none of none of them are idiots they're not dan brown you know yeah. or James well, Patterson. For whatever reason, they they do get buzzed about for a reason. Yeah. Like they 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 built up their name because they can write. Yeah. And and they have the like best and brightest of our age have tried this to tackle the problem of Trump, and they've gotten nowhere because all they can do is these like hashtag resistance cliches about he's orange and he's mean. I think it makes me sad. It it ties at some point to a depressing fact that like to so anyone anyone who's a leftist I don't think is shocked by by Trump or by where we are. Um, it's it's painful. It doesn't make it less painful. But part of becoming a leftist is learning about the history of these kinds of systemic violences, and that a lot of this is things are rising to the surface more now, but they were never gone. Like, you know, learning pretty quick that, like, these uh, racist or anti-Semitic yeah. or um, homophobic... And it's like... Yeah. And, it, like, when capitalism is in a crisis, it, it produces fascism as a kind of antibody, almost. It's, yeah. Fascism isn't just the bad man being bad. It's a direct and, like, necessary for capitalism consequence of things going a certain way. Because your rich, philanthropical, wonderful Bill Gates-style billionaire will do fucking anything to remain a billionaire, and don't forget that that's what's most important to them. Hmm. Um, and same with anyone who has power. And it touches on the weird thing that, like, we developed historically these structures of power, partly, or at least this is this is the theory that I find most compelling. Um, at some point, that great anxiety that all of us have, dying um, and being dead forever, um, hits. And so the desire to accrue power, because power means safety in some kind of primal way. Um, you know, going back to the whole, like, if I don't have this, a bear will kill and eat me. Um, yeah. You start making these structures to get more and more power and to guarantee yourself more and more power. Um, and you enforce them, even in the sake of other people, because you know that 
if that person's racialized power disappears, that means mine will disappear. That means I will have less power and less protection against these things which give me anxiety. And so we build this horrible fucking machine, all because people can't grapple with these base anxieties about being alive. Um, and, yeah, and so Trump is not shocking and even in certain ways not noteworthy because he's just the next manufacturer of it. Like, he's the ultimate American in a lot of ways, in all hmm. the ugly, horrible ways. Um, but to a centrist, this is, or even do like a centrist Democrat type, this is like mind-boggling because they could, they could grapple with George W. Bush because he looked, walked and talked like a duck. Um, but Trump is all the things that, like, yeah, Trump is this weird, like, hyper-exaggerated form, and the fact that someone actually is as unvarnished as they said George Bush was, like, they can't compute it. Because, like, mm. not to rehabilitate George Bush, he was, a, he was a war criminal and, a, like, a vicious, horrible person and an insanely horrible president. Um, but he had the uh, the mask of tact. Like, he at least had the mask of giving speeches saying, we're not at war with Islam, even if all of his policies pointed directly towards it. Um, yeah, you, they, they can imagine that if they'd just gone in a room with him and gave him a West Wing kind of speech about... Uh, about the facts of what going to into Iraq would mean and what then George W. Bush would would be one around, whereas Donald Trump would, I don't know, be eating a Big Mac or something. And that's where I think I think part of this comes from leftism to some people is a way to feel smug and superior to to others. It's a way to feel um, like ironic distance from the shittiness of mainstream politics because you're like, I'm above that because I'm smarter than that. But at a certain point, the heart of leftism is a very sincere and an almost unsolvable perennial grief and rage mm. and eerie sense of powerlessness because it's like, how many times have we cycled this wheel? Yeah. And that, I think that spirit, is not in any of these books that we're reading. It they're still they're still coming from a world where everything made sense and was fine and was thrown in and had problems but was thrown into disarray because to some extent they haven't gone through that grieving process of like learning about the move bombings in Philly uh, or or really grappling with the fact that the CIA did their damnedest to convince Martin Luther King to kill himself and then failing that uh, assassinated him. Like mm. the, they have, like I, I, I had discussions with um, uh, someone in my family. I, I don't want to disclose who, um, who really couldn't wrap his head around the fact that, like, the founding fathers have always been bad because some of them were strongly against uh, slavery, and those ones we can we can give an amount of credit to. But there were a number that we celebrate, like we had. Alexander Hamilton equivocated on the question, didn't say yes or no, which is infinitely less respectable than the people who at least defended it, because we at least know where we stand with those shitbags. We can look back at them and go, oh, they're a horrible person. They said slavery was good. But, you know, this other figure just sort of hides behind 
Earth. historically now is hidden behind the masquerade. He never explicitly said that slavery was good. He just declined to answer when directly asked if it was bad. And it, those realizations seem to be devoid uh, when a lot of writers are talking about Trump. Like, they don't seem to have that more universalized rage. They just look at him as vulgar, as opposed to being a perfect icon of a hideously vulgar machine. Hmm. Until the next perfect icon, because I, I doubt we're done. This could be an even worse done. one. But, um, yeah. But, uh, you know, we, we can at least be done with this episode and done with uh, this new Jonathan Leafham book. We can say, okay, Jonathan Leafham, you're, you're still in your 20-year rut. Maybe um, sometime in the next 12 years before... Yeah, well, we can still have paper and printing and publishing. You could put out an, something as good as Motherless Brooklyn or Gun with Occasional Music. But, um, you know, keep, keep trying. Keep, uh, you know, just keep pounding away. You, you're going you're gonna to get it emoji back one of these days. Unrelated book. Unrelated. A book that dealt with America that came out last year that was an excellent novel. Uh, Shadow Bond by Steve Erickson. Great book. I've heard about that. Uh, probably from you, actually. I think you mentioned it a few times. Yeah. Maybe. That's, that's, but, uh, that's a really good book. Yeah. But, um, and uh, Cherry, which came out this year and yeah. was super amazing. Um, I don't think it's going to, you know, inspire the revolution, but it's, it's definitely a damn good book about America. Um, it will make you feel bad in a way that you... Cherry made me feel bad in a way that felt honest. Oh, yeah. It's unflinchingly beautifully honest, um, in in the way that uh, alt lit is supposed to be. It it's like alt lit was waiting for a subject matter as big as Iraq and PTSD and heroin for it to start making sense. Instead but, of the sorrow of rich people going to NYU, exactly. I, I don't yeah, fuck any of those people. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it. it if you're going to be unflinchingly honest and really like lo-fi and stuff, you need a, a huge subject matter. Uh, but anyway, I, I said it all last week. Yeah. But uh, let's let's play it out with some some screamo because we've been playing a, a I think a fair amount of screamo, probably more than I imagined I would play on this. Yeah. Uh, I think I would thought it'd be mostly death metal and black metal. But I've been, been having a good couple of years. It has, yeah. Um, these guys are called Ithaca. They're from uh, South London. Uh, they were on the uh, Woman 2 compilation, which is awesome, um, as were every good band. And, um, yeah, they're, they're really solid uh, screamo. They're dual male female vocalists, which I can't off the top of my head think of any i'm sure there's there's some that, that do a similar thing but uh it really works really well here um yeah they're, they're a very very solid screamer band and um they've been around since 2014 um they've had a kind of hiatus between 2015 when they put out trespassers which i think was an ep and uh yeah, only four tracks. And uh, The Language of Injury is coming out in 20 January next year. 
but they've got the title track up on their Bandcamp right now, which is what I'm going to steal using a Bandcamp stealing MP3 thing. And um, then I'm going to insert it into this track and you're going to hear Ithaca. And I don't believe they're on tour right now. I don't know what record labels is going to be on. Uh, it, hopefully on Holy Raw, because Holy Raw is like the great UK metal label at the moment. But um, they're cool as fuck. So check out Ithaca. Uh, next week, we're going to be... Uh, got a cool guest, a fellow named Aubrey Citizen. Citizen. I'm making it sound like citizen, like of a country, but it's... it's ci- Never mind. Yeah. Um, he's written a book about wrestling. I know really less than nothing about wrestling. I'm sure the things I know about wrestling are wrong. And I know a stupidly large amount. Yeah, everyone in podcasting loves wrestling. And I feel so left out because I know nothing about it. And like, everyone loves wrestling or MMA or something. Some form of men-hitting sport. My short pitch for wrestling is it's, uh, it's soap operas for people who like superheroes. Superheroes are already that. Week in, week out, serialized format storytelling, and they solve all their problems with backflip attacks. Yeah, that um, shit's tight. Yeah, superheroes so, are already that though, so it's kind of redundant. Yeah, and um, wrestling but... is what if manga was real? <laughs> <laughs> Manga's already real. Um... <laughs> You you just have to you have to die while masturbating to hentai and then you'll wake up in the manga universe and you'll have a waifu. <laughs> and um that's true, by the way. And um that is. I'm not responsible for anyone who actually dies autoerotically fixated to manga. If, to if you, to waifu. If you kill yourself while beating off to hentai because you heard us say that that would make you wake up in the anime world you're stupid yeah that that's darwin award that actually the darwin awards would touch that they'd they'd, they'd feel kind of gross about it yeah, he died while doing what <laughs> yeah that's but uh yeah so so don't die doing that uh die listening to ithaca and but don't die before next week because we've got another show and then we've got more shows so don't just don't die just for the time being don't die yeah we got we got another 12 years folks we'll give you a heads up when we're done then you can look into dying hopefully we'll get such a huge fan base that we can all die together yeah like Um, all together at the same time at the same place our final show um deep in the jungle yeah having shot a u.s (laughs) senator (laughs) <laughs> so yeah come back next week and here's Ithaca 